1: Welcome to another edition of A Current Life. I'm your host Jimmy Gould, and I'm very honored and excited to introduce to you my special guest this week, Sheila Ward. Sheila, welcome to A Current Life.
2: Thanks, Jimmy. I'm happy to be here.
1: Uh, if you'll bear with me for a minute, there's probably a very few people, but I want to at least introduce you properly to those very few people who may not be familiar with all of your work. Sheila uh, Ward is an award-winning actress and also the founder of Hope Village for Children in her hometown of Mississippi. Her feature film credits include The Fugitive with Harrison Ford, The Guardian with Kevin Costner, The Day After Tomorrow with Dennis Quaid, and The Stepfather with Dylan Walsh. Sheila has been honored with numerous Emmy Awards. She has received a Golden Globe Award and has been recognized with numerous Screen Actors Guild Award nominations. She starred in ABC's critically acclaimed dramatic series Once and Again, NBC's award-winning series Sisters, and Almost Golden, The Jessica Savage Story, and in 2010... Scylla joined the cast of the hit CBS TV drama, CSI New York. Sheila, I appreciate you making the time to join us today in your busy schedule.
2: Oh, you're so welcome. How are you, Jimmy? <laughs> I'm,
1: doing, I'm doing okay. I, I had the pleasure to meet Sheila in person. Oh, I guess it's going back a number of months with her husband, Howard, and a, and a very dear friend of ours. And I, when we started this show and I was asked to do this show, it was really a, a show about philosophy and about the journey of life, and I made up my mind at that time that I wanted you to be one of my very first guests, so we've, we've done uh, uh, a few shows and had some very interesting guests on, and, and I just thought that uh, a lot of people I know are listening because uh, they've told me that they miss Teddy, so uh, I've uh, followed your career. And, uh, was actually indirectly involved in one of your early movies, uh, uh, Steel Justice with Marty Cove.
2: Oh, my and goodness.
1: That was back a little ways. But I often start this show off with kind of the early years. So for our many fans, the show goes into over 180 countries. And, uh, I know people would love to learn about what you were like as a little girl growing up in Meridian, Mississippi.
2: Well Meridian is uh, a town of about forty nine thousand so not um, certainly not a booming metropolis um, very um, very homogenized part of the world at that point in time uh, very small town values i I have to say I wouldn't take anything for growing up in, in Meridian or in a town like that or in the south because the um, community as a whole, when you're in a small town like that, really becomes um, sort of like your mother country where you are looked out for by um, everyone in the community. You have a connection to the community and a sense of belonging that um is very hard to have growing up in a city like Los Angeles or New York even though I love those places but to have my fundamental core being being shaped by those kinds of values of a small town and a sense of belonging i think have made all the difference in the world for me in terms of keeping me grounded in this crazy place called hollywood uh, keeping me centered within myself and those values that uh, that small town and, and community gave to me.
1: You know, I grew up in, in the Midwest, in Cincinnati, and I spent a lot of years in Hollywood, in New York, and, and I actually was very, it was important to me to come back to Cincinnati and raise my children uh, when they were born here. And, and I felt the same. It, was, it obviously was bigger than Meridian, but still it had, kind of very hometown values to it, and I really appreciated that growing up. I felt a sense of security, and I think that's really what you're discussing.
2: Uh, Yeah, I am, and and where people are really interested in one another, not for what you can do for them, but really interested in each other's human beings and are there for each other in a way that um, only happens when a 9-11 happens in New York or you know, um, some some disaster happens. It, on a daily basis, people um, give of themselves in a way that one is nurtured by, which you don't uh, find in large cities, of course.
1: Now, you were the oldest of four children, so you, you, what, you had two younger brothers and a younger sister?
2: Exactly, yeah. We were all really close in age. I think Mom had three in diapers at the same time at one point. Wow. Oh. <laughs> so, Um, yeah, we were all very close.
1: Did you feel responsible for the younger ones?
2: Um, we were so close in age, I'm sure. I I know that I did for my youngest brother, who's five years younger than I am. Um, I, I was like his second little mother, you know, teaching him this or that as we went, you know, how to take up for himself and that kind of thing as we went along. And, um... But you know, it wasn't a case of being an, a much older sibling where I was making the kids dinner and that sort of thing. Uh, my sister is only sixteen months younger, and my brother is maybe uh, sixteen months younger than she is. So we were all very uh, close in age.
1: Were you were do you were there any specific obstacles that maybe you know you faced in your childhood or? Life changing opportunities. I always ask the question if there were kind of wow moments when you were younger that helped define you or helped you know you figure out what you wanted to do with your life. And if you can look back on your years, was there anything in particular you can let our listeners know about along those lines?
2: Um, I was a very introverted, shy kid, actually, um, and probably still am today. I'm, I'm publicly. Uh, very comfortable in, in that arena, but privately very shy, if that makes sense.
1: Sure.
2: Um, <clears throat> growing up, I think I really was more of a quiet observer, and I think that that served me really well, especially in terms of being an actor, because I I observed a lot. I sort of studied things from the other side of the room a lot, um, observing people a lot. Um, because when you are more introverted, you're really not, you know, you're not being the life of the party and the one talking all the time, so you really are listening most of the time. Um, and there were, you know, even when I was older and first went to New York, I remember I I just, I was afraid to open my mouth at a dinner table with a group of people, you know, <laughs> dinner you know, all had gone to Harvard or Yale and, and felt very intimidated by those situations. And um, it took me a long time to really get my sea legs. But back to your question, uh, there were no really aha moments until I think I I was in my 20s when I really had my eyes open to the world and to myself. I feel like I was sort of a late bloomer, if you will. Do you think
1: that do you think that a lot of the actors that you work with are shy and a bit withdrawn or introverted and that's really what drives them in their craft?
2: Um it's really 50-50. I meet many who are absolutely not shy at all in a personal way and then then meet many who I would never think were that introverted but but truly are. I don't know that that's the defining factor for what drives someone to become an actor. I think, I think maybe if I um, had to make a a generalized statement, I think the most dysfunctional of us all (laughs) are actors and uh, seek that kind of affirmation on a a larger scale because of uh, some hole um, one needs to fill. Having said that, there's certainly many people who come from very, um, leave it to beaver families, if there is such a thing, that do pursue acting for the, uh, love of the craft. So, but I would say the majority of people out in Hollywood are seeking to, um, fill a, a void, um, self-esteem-wise or, uh, really attracted to what they, what they think will, will fill them up and make them whole as a person, the ephemeral, Celebrity and fame, which certainly is is just that, ephemeral and not lasting, Um, and and it's just a it's a complicated thing. But I would I would say it attracts the most dysfunctional people.
1: (laughs) Right. Let me so let me uh, move you to your University of Alabama, the Crimson Tide days. Because first of all, congratulations! I think you were national champions this year, right?
2: We were. And I was there. That was just fabulous.
1: Well, I represent a very famous Alabama player, Andre Smith, who was the tackle. And I, it's hard to be around him sometimes because it's all Alabama. But I, I spent and lived some time down in Alabama, and, and it's a great, great place, a great university. And, you know, I guess the LSU-Alabama game was one of the biggest things anybody could possibly want to watch. So, uh, tell me a little bit about your college days. And you were a homecoming queen, and you were a cheerleader, and you were part of the Chi Omega sorority. What were some of your fondest memories of your college
2: years? Um, I think I think college for me was um, probably my first sort of spring, if you will, as a human being, where I really came into my own in terms of courage. To try out for things like the cheerleader to, um, on that scale to, uh, really put myself out there in that public way, if you will.
1: And Um, and was that a choice going to Alabama because it was nearby where you grew up or what what made you choose Alabama?
2: Well, I actually, I I had finished high school a, a year early because I was at a very small, uh, private school. There were only 35 kids in the graduating class, and and uh, I, you know, had been with all those people since the eighth grade, so I, I was kind of done, and I wanted to, I, I wanted to graduate. I, I had very few classes to take to have enough credits to do so, so I did that in the summer, and a friend of, of mine and I both finished early. My parents really wouldn't let me go away to school, so I went to the I thought I was too young, so I went to the local junior college for the equivalent of my senior, you know, freshman year, senior in high school freshman year of college. And I wanted to go to William & Mary because I had sort of studied that Barron's profile of American colleges, and mm-hmm. William & Mary just had this incredible history about it. It's one of the oldest universities. And I love that part of the world. Had never been there, but I picked that out, and I said, Daddy, this is where I, I really want to go, and so he calls and gives my grades and they say, Well you've waited too late, you know, but you can get in for for that particular September. But you can get in um the next term and fantastic. In the meantime my art teacher, and I was really passionate about art and that was my what I was gonna major in, had gone in high school, had gone to Alabama and raved about the head of the department, the art department there, the professor and she said, well, you really might want to just go there since you can't go to William & Mary in September and, you know, get used to being away from home. And I did that, and I, of course, immediately got swept up in of going out for a sorority, and then cheerleading tryouts were coming up, and, and I never left. And that was really such a blessing in, in hindsight, because you never know how the dots of your life are going to connect. And if I had not gone to Alabama, I would have never ended up hit out here acting, which I'm so grateful for, because cheerleading, we were on national television, you know, more than we weren't, because Bear Bryant was a coach at that point in time, and... Um, they were there was lots of exposure as a cheerleader on television you know you would get fan mail saying you're the next Mary Tyler Moore and that and, and that would just sort of sit back there as a little seed in the back of my head <laughs> and i was asked to um audition for abc sports to be a sideline college commentator for color commentary um so i did the audition and um it was great when I do those little stand-up pieces about how sure. Alabama got its name and this sort of thing, Crimson Tide. And but when they they came back a second time for basketball season, and I I really just sat there and <laughs> I had no clue about basketball it wasn't my favorite sport, knew nothing about it, even though we cheerleaded for it. I, I mean, I, the poor guy sat there and saw as I was supposed to be taking notes for the game so that I could sum the game up at the end on camera, Right. that I had my legal pad was totally blank. <laughs> and then all I was doing was really looking at the cheerleaders across the court going, huh, <laughs> And he, he finally turns to me about halftime and goes, "You know, I I think maybe you might want to glance over at some of my notes I'm taking." <laughs> so I ended up going out with that guy, um, dating him for he was so charming. I didn't get the job because I failed that miserably, but um, he lived in New York, and and I ultimately got a job in New York and moved to New York and and actually dated him, and he was my entree to that world. So was, he,
1: was that was that a tough decision to go to New York as a Southern girl? I mean, what was the culture shock like coming from the South to New York?
2: Well, the first time I ever went to New York was as a cheerleader for Alabama, cheering for the uh, National Invitational Tournament the basketball. Okay. And um, I, I, I arrived, and I, I looked at this world like... It was beyond magical, the most amazing place I'd ever seen in my life, and I said to myself when we were there, staying at a hotel across from Madison Square Garden, that I'm going to live here. I have to live here. So I... I graduate from college, and um, somebody who knew Bear Bryant really well had started a Pepsi-Cola bottling and distributing plant, had bought one in Memphis, Tennessee, and through Bear Bryant's office had contacted me and said, um, would you like to be, like the equivalent of the Pepsi girl? We'd love to offer you a job. And I said, well, what does that mean? They said, well, you'll do like PR, like the Danny Thomas Golf Classic and this sort of thing for, for you know, our PepsiCo plant. I went, well, okay, that that sounds great. That was my first legitimate job offer. I go to Memphis, I arrive. They've just hired some 28-year-old hotshot, you know, general manager from Illinois, and he looks at me and says, "Well, there's your office if we can be of any help let us know." <laughs> and I didn't major in public relations. I majored in, you know, <laughs> advertising and fine arts and painting and so i went and bought a public relations textbook and i had it in my lap under my desk (laughs) at my desk and i'd be thumbing through trying to figure out what the hell i'm supposed to be doing because nobody's telling me anything and there is no danny thomas golf classic for eight months so i I really tried to do everything I could. I came up with, like, well, I'll contact the National Cheerleading Association, which holds all their finals at the time in in Memphis, and maybe Pepsi will get involved in sponsoring that. And, I mean, I'm just grasping at straws. That job lasted until the general manager said to me one day, Selah, I I passed by your car, and I saw you have a couple of Coca-Cola bottles on the floor of of the car. And I looked at him, I said, well, I... I don't really like the taste of Pepsi. (laughs) I always had Coca Cola. You know, we drank Coke for breakfast. You know, Coca Cola is like the southern. (laughs) You know, it all got started. The first, I think the first uh, place it was built was Vicksburg, Mississippi. And that, I knew I was about to get fired.
1: So much for being the Pepsi girl. Exactly.
2: So I quit. In the meantime, I'm on an airplane. And I'm seated next to a guy who worked for this company called Jack Morton Productions in New York. And, and they have a branch in Atlanta. And as I'm on the airplane going to interview with Delta Airlines, he says, that he gives me his card because he said, well, you could come to New York and draw up storyboards, you know, and hmm. learn how to produce these audiovisual shows. This is before that they would do like big presentations for American Express or Breck and Clairol shampoo, things like that, where at these big, huge, you know, corporate meetings, you would have these synchronized slide projectors. I mean, if you can imagine, no video yet. This <laughs> is so archaic. And so you would learn, you would draw up storyboards for this, um, and how this would all sort of flow together. So I, I go, I don't get offered the airline job for Delta. I, I, I did ultimately interview for Eastern and get a job acceptance at Eastern Airlines, and now I have this real phobia of flying, so it's a good thing I never <laughs> never got that. But in the meantime, at the same time, this guy says to me, really come and check it out. So I fly to New York before I take the Eastern Airlines job, and I take the job. I'm making $6.50 an hour drawing up these storyboards in New York, but I had a roommate and I had all these uh, connections through the ABC Sports Guide and where where were you
1: living then in New York?
2: I lived on um eighty eighth and York avenue,
1: oh my God,
2: and shared Good. this little apartment in a in a building, It building was very safe with um this girlfriend that i had I had met um and we were sharing a one bedroom apartment. one of us was sleeping we'd take turns sleeping out in the living room area to pull out sofa and the other in the in the bedroom so Finally, I went, okay, I really can't live like this and go to the theater on $6.50 an hour or do anything I really wanted to do in New York. And somebody said, well, you should model this guy who had gone to Alabama or I ran into it. And he says, I know a, f- a photographer who would take some shots of you because, you know, you could make $100 an hour. And I went, oh, my Lord. And, you know, that was, is- I, I don't know what it is now, but then 100 was was just. Is that crazy. when
1: Wilhelmina came
2: along? That's when Wilhelmina came on. So the guy took those pictures, and he called Wilhelmina, and I went over and met her. She said, well, you're not quite tall enough, um, but let's give it a shot. And at the time, you know, the look was like Christy Brinkley and, and Cheryl Teague, that blonde, blue-eyed sure. girl next door thing, and I was a little more exotic for that um, mm-hmm. the, the sort of vogue at the moment. But she did hire me, and um, I made a decent living and started doing television commercials right away and and took acting classes just to help me with those TV commercial auditions. And then all of a sudden, my life takes this, you know, immediate right turn into this land I never thought about doing other than that one little fan letter I got cheerleading saying, you look like you're the next Mary Tyler Moore, (laughs) and then sat back there. And I, I started taking these classes, and I went, "Oh my God! You know, I love this. I love
1: this." So, was that your aha moment?
2: That was that was a big aha moment. You're absolutely right. And, and something and what that, did that you, was just out of left field. I'd never thought about doing, um, and had no idea that I had that kind of passion for for that kind of career.
1: So, at that point in time, you really. Kind of find out what you want to do and where your passion is, and and is that what propels you to Los Angeles?
2: Yeah, I um, I did a play as a showcase in this this little acting theater where where this group of us were studying, and I remember Corbin Burnson was in there. I remember mm-hmm. him from LA Law? Sure. Um, and it was like a little club, you know. We'd all help each other with with our showcases and. We'd all go out after and uh, have a beer and a burger. and uh, It was just a very special time. So when I did the showcase to try to get an agent, um, I did get an agent, and I got um, an offer to do a daytime soap opera. And I'd done two days on One Life to Live playing Nurse Bunny Cahill. That should tell you everything you need to know about the (laughs) part. All I did was offer this one doctor I was interested in food Everything was about food. I actually went on David Letterman and cut together all the all the little snippets that were the beginning of every one of the scenes I did. Hi, doctor. Would you like some of the chocolate cake? He
1: must have had a heck of a time with you on that show, David Letterman.
2: He was actually a lot of fun. I was, of course, as nervous as I could be, but he was really fun because he started talking about um, Studio Fifty Four
1: uh-huh. and.
2: Steve Rubell,
1: I was there many times. Yes,
2: yeah, but he's he, so he's talking about Steve as if he's still living, you know. And, <laughs> and, and so I, I took a beat and I went, "Dave." He said, "Yeah." I went, "He's no longer with us." <laughs> and he doesn't. He's so quick, and, and you know, he doesn't miss a beat. He turns to the camera. I apologize. My condolences to all the family. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: so it ended up being um, really fun. Really fun, but going back to the my short stint on daytime soap operas, I thought, oh my god, okay. After playing Nurse Bunny, I really I can't do this. This is not check off. This is isn't what my acting classes were like. So I, I said, I'm hopping on a plane. I'm going to Los Angeles, and now I had modeling money saved, and I checked into the Beverly Hilton Hotel, and a friend said, oh, let me introduce you to this manager. I go meet her. She says, I know a part that hadn't been cast in this movie Blake Edwards is doing called The Man Who Loved Women, the remake of the Truffaut film. Sure. And I said, okay. She said, here's where you go. gave me the dress, and I arrive, and I had been in Los Angeles for two weeks, and there's Blake Edwards, and he says, "Well, I'm you're going to read with me." And so I I read the scene with him and and halfway through the scene he says, "Okay, that's fine." I thought, "I'm a lord, you know." So tell tell me one thing.
1: Uh, how did your family feel about first of all your moving to New York and then to LA and kind of, you know, the career choice that you made at that time coming from the south and and all of that? What was that like?
2: Well, Blake gave me that part, so Two weeks after being in Los Angeles, I, I I had a job. And then I had a job after that. So I never left. So they were fine with me moving to L.A. because I had work. Since so then. Moving to New York was a different story because, mm-hmm. um, you know, my mother couldn't imagine why I would want to live in such a place. <laughs> and my father, who was always really the... Um, you know, I admired him so because he had lived the most life. You know, my mama never got the opportunity to go to college and she had never really traveled and her vantage point of the world was very narrow because of that. But he, you know, had been in the Navy and um, had lived a bigger life and and was a very ambitious man and um, an interesting man and very bright and I loved to talk to him about the world. So, he was, um, you know, gave me his blessing, and and Mama went along, you know, silently. I'm sure horrified, and they were supportive ultimately. And the fact that um, I was able to work, you know, soon so soon after I I got there, doing the modeling thing, where I was actually able to sustain myself, they were they were fine.
1: Well, you're very fortunate for that cuz i made up my mind very young that i wanted to make movies if i couldn't be a a pitcher in baseball that i wanted to make movies and i fought i fought for my life with my father who was a lawyer and wanted me to be a lawyer and there were lawyers throughout our family for three generations i went to law school you know and all i wanted to do was make movies and and i literally did not really do it until my father passed away and and it was just he just didn't see it as a business. He didn't see it as something where you could support yourself. So I think the big thing for you was that you were successful at it in L.A. And they saw, you know, plus you had the exposure that your father had had, so he was supportive. And that obviously gave you a lot of emotional support. So I think in that regard, because we talk to young people all the time, you know, in our businesses that come in an intern, and, you know, most of them have their, their eyes wide open and set on either being an agent or going into sports or going into movies. And I think that, you know, it's a tough road, you know, for most people. They don't make it. The odds are against you right out of the gate.
2: And well, that's very true. but And also I think uh, gender has a lot to do with that. I think it's mm-hmm. very hard for um, our culture to support a man, the breadwinner of the family in a traditional family structure, Uh, On something so uncertain, um, because it's really like rolling the dice as a career. Um, I find I hear that all the time, where parents are really not supportive of of uh, the male going out, their son, male son, going out and trying acting or uh, to be a a director or producer in in this crazy business. But you know, you've got to let a child follow their passion. because there's you know you you give yourself a time limit, that's my biggest advice to anybody who wants to be in 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 a business that that's as entrepreneurial like this that you have such little control over is to give yourself a time limit, whether even if it's two years you know um say okay at the end of that two years, if nothing has happened for me, then I'm going to plan b and and always have a plan always have a an plan a and a plan b. Well, mm-hmm.
1: I, I agree with you. Mm-hmm. I uh, we're, we're uh, you you did it the right way, and I agree with you about passion. You have to follow your passion and put a time period at least on it that's realistic. We're going to take a short break. Our sponsors are Smart Water and Ohio Midwestern College and Ad Space Mall Networks. Uh, uh, we have, and we're very honored to have Seal Ward with us today. Uh, we'll be back in in just a second. Thanks.
3: Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for
2: calling.
3: VoiceAmerica.com. Think of the world 50 years ago.
4: We've been making alpine clothing and packs right here in the USA since 1981. In fact, we began by stitching together extremely light climbing gear that guys on the mountain were trying to make on their own. It was a big deal in 1981, making Wild Things the gear of choice for some of the world's most demanding alpine climbers. Of course, the climbs and the climbers are now the stuff of legend. Inspiration for the next group to realize the freedom of moving over rock and ice in a fast and light way. The rest, three decades of elation, misery, epics, and near misses, we put back into everything we make. Light, durable, functional, packable. Wild Things Gear is made and tested by those who live in it. Available exclusively at wildthingsgear.com. Stay wild.
3: How has your belief system been formed? Has it been based on others telling you what to believe? Do you desire to make changes in your life that you know will bring you deeper fulfillment? Tune into the Ripple Effect with Katherine Cloward for your weekly dose of inspiration and encouragement. Whether it be in your business, personal relationships, or family life, this show will help you recognize and trust your intuitive knowing. Catherine and her guests will help inspire you to make fulfilling choices for your life. The Ripple Effect is heard live every Thursday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: You're listening to A Current Life with Jimmy Gould. If you have a question or comment for Jimmy or his guest today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd like to send an email, the address is at yahoo.com. Now, back to the program.
1: Welcome back to A Current Life. This is your host, Jimmy Gould, and I'm joined with the lovely award-winning actress, Sheila Ward. Sheila, before we took our break, we were talking a lot about how you really were able to support yourself when you went out to Los Angeles and and, and do a number of things. And I kind of want to talk a little bit about your role of Teddy Reed on Sisters, because uh, it was just a hugely popular show, and so many people have called us about, you know, wanting you to talk a little bit about it. I think you won your first Emmy Award in 1994. Was that from that show?
2: It was, yeah. I... Oh the god i that, that show for me was um certainly the first time I was ever taken seriously as an actor. It was like going to school for me. that show was on for six years, and I was able to um and I really wasn't very good when I started i mean i i good enough to get the job but i I really didn't have the acting chops that I was so striving toward (laughs) learning. Um, And I I would work with my coach every script. I I still work with a coach. I don't think you ever stop learning. But I, I, I would fall on my face one week, and I'd be really bad. And then, and then the next week, you know, I'd pick myself up by the bootstraps, and the next week I'd be fabulous. And then I, you know, this would go on for like six years. But it got to the point there were such crazy, crazy, farcical storylines on that show. Where one of the first shows is, uh, you know, I opened up the script, and Teddy gets drunk and shoots up Sousy Kurtz. I mean, uh, Julian Phillips character's wedding with a shotgun, you know, <laughs> shoots up all the crystal and she's drunk and and I opened that script and I went I, I was terrified. I thought, Oh my God, how do I do that? I've never you know, how do I do these things? And and the next the next script they'd have me doing this um take off on, on the Yellow Brick Road of the Wizard of Oz where I'm trying to sell cosmetics door to door and you know, just really crazy fun, farcical fantasy segments to that show, as well as real heavy drama. So I I learned uh, trial by fire. I went through every scenario you could imagine in terms of a storyline, drunk, daughter being raped, uh, y- you name it, divorce, what, George Clooney being my husband, watching him being blown up in a car in front of me. Um, Anything you could think of, I think I had to play it on that show. So by the time I finished, and the time, and I went to do once and again, I I felt like I was just flying effortlessly. Well, that
3: I show
1: I guess came to an end in 1996. You won the Emmy in '94, and and then as I read a lot about you, you read for the role of Lily Brooks Manning in Once and Again, and and I guess. Initially the creators thought you might have been quote too beautiful for the average single mother to identify with but then you you actually you ended up getting the part and won your second Emmy and also a Golden Globe award. Uh, did you have any idea that you almost lost out on the opportunity because you were too beautiful?
2: No, I had, I had no idea. <laughs> That's the first I've heard that. That's funny.
1: We picked up a little bit of that information, you know. We have all these researchers who come to me with this, but I I know that you have uh, you were wonderful in in both parts and 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 touched the nerve of a lot of people. I think a lot of people, particularly in sisters, miss that show. Uh, oh, I, you know. I
2: miss that show. That that was just. I was looking at some footage the other day because I had to put something together together for Screen Actors Guild where they do like a retrospective thing where you can talk to um actors and I was pulling scenes from sisters to see if there was anything I could show because you have to put a reel together and I sat there with my mouth open I hadn't looked at those shows in you know 10 years or more and it was it really was an awesome show very clever colorful characters um I don't know why they don't release it in, in, on a DVD. Right. Um, it, it's crazy because it has more people stop me about Sisters than any other show. Well, what
1: was it like being married to George Clooney on that show?
2: It would have been really great if I hadn't have been pregnant the whole time I was with him. <laughs> like,
1: great answer. Needless
2: to say, I'm not sure he knew what to do with that. But, <laughs> um he
1: probably thought about it.
2: <laughs> uh, he he was great. He he is, um, and still is today, one of the kindest, um, most down-to-earth, open-hearted male actors I've I've met in this business.
1: Well, you know, he grew up in our backyard, so I've known his father a long time, and I've never met him, but. I've never really actually heard anybody ever say anything negative about him. We're very fond of him here in Cincinnati and in Ohio, and he grew up in the Kentucky area. So, mm-hmm. uh, But, you know, you've you've done a lot of film work. I mean, just a tremendous amount of films and, and special parts, you know. I mean, are there is there one film, I know this is a hard question and you probably hate it, but I'm going to ask it anyway, that that you really enjoyed the most that you start in and... and that you can
2: tell us what that was? Um, I, I have to say probably the, the one film I was most excited about was uh, The Fugitive with Harrison Ford. Yeah. Because I, I you know, had a six-year contract with... That, let, let me back up a second because I, you know, when I first started in this business, all I did were movies. I couldn't get arrested in television And I started with, as I was saying, uh, the Blake Edwards movie, then um, Russell's Rhapsody and The Man Who Loved Women. I mean, I'm I'm sorry, the Tom Hanks movie, Nothing in Common.
1: I love that movie.
2: And it's a great movie. And then, but unfortunately, all those movies were supposed to be huge hits, but they weren't for whatever Mm -hmm. reason. And I wasn't really good enough as an actress at that time to really stand out in any way. And once I started television, then you start on that path where you can't get arrested in movies. It was just a bizarre thing. And it was the culture of the business at the time. So I was a, had a six-year contract with Sisters, and I, um, in the middle of filming, got the part of The Fugitive, and they let me get out. It only took me about two weeks to shoot, so they let me go to Chicago and shoot, and I came back, and they worked out the schedule. I got to go back. It was so exciting for me because, A, Harrison Ford was like uh, one of the biggest icons I, I could even think of. I wouldn't, you know, I, I don't know how old I was when I saw him and, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark and all that, and I I had seen him when I first moved out here um, going into an apartment building, and he was standing like three feet away from me. And I, I just idolized him. And so all of a sudden, here I am, locked into TV, and I get the opportunity to go to this huge, do this huge movie with Harrison Ford. And it was maybe one of the most exciting moments of my career. I was dead in the opening credits, but... It was okay. I was lived in flashback the whole the whole movie, and it was just a wonderful experience. And Let me ask you: What was
1: Jackie Gle- was it Jackie Gleason that was in the Nothing in Common?
2: Yes, that my was writer, yeah. What was last last that like? Movie before, before? It was his last movie before he passed away. Right. What
1: was that like?
2: <laughs> I didn't have any scenes with with him, uh, my character, but but mostly with Tom
1: Hanks. Yeah, yeah,
2: they were most all the time. And, so, but I certainly met him um on the set, but he was he was still pr- he was pretty ill at that time mm-hmm. and declining um, It was such an honor to even be in his presence for all the obvious reasons um just an extraordinarily successful and gifted actor. I wish I'd been able to work with him
1: yeah is so let me ask you i guess um is there in particular anyone that you really would like to have the opportunity to work with that you haven't worked with? I mean, does, does anybody come to mind?
2: Oh, gosh, so many people. Um, you know, I think it's just in terms of the male world is I, I love Johnny Depp. I think yeah, Johnny sure. Depp is just such a fascinating creature and so entertaining. Robert Downey Jr. is so those two actors, um, Always mesmerize me, they're just very clever and very engaging and very interesting as actors and Meryl Streep who is just you know you know absolutely deserving of every single thing she is honored for. She's just brilliant diane keaton i love I love her so much I love her humor <laughs> I love her wacky humor um but they're just endless great actors out there.
1: So let me ask you—you um, know—in your you, you you wrote a book, uh, your memoir in two thousand and two, called Homesick. You talk about growing up in a small, charming Southern town and the positive effects of that on you, and how you reconnect, kind of, with, with your sense of how many years later, and also losing your mother, which uh, I've also experienced, actually twice. Uh, how has this affected your parenting? You have what a couple, two children and. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think that's had uh, an effect on you?
2: Writing that book?
1: Well, writing the book and also kind of, you know, uh, going through the, the the loss with your mother oh. and things like that.
2: Um, I was, you know, the I, I never thought about writing a book. I had gone on to Oprah talking about a documentary that I had produced on ageism and our culture. And I was... a. I got a call from uh, Judith Regan, uh, Regan Books, saying we'd sure. love for you to do a book about that. And I said, well, I really have nothing else to say on that subject. But she kept talking to me, and I thought, well, this this is kind of intriguing. I <laughs> <laughs> never thought about writing a book. But, you know, I there again, the book really became for me uh, really more like a love letter to my mother. Um, it certainly was by no means any tell-all. It was um, not an autobiography. It was just sort of a memoir of a time and place. And my mother died um, right as the book came out, right mm-hmm. before it came out, I think. Oh. Um, yeah, because I, I wrote about her death in the book, of course. So she died before it went to print, and, and the whole of the last chapters were about her death. Um, you know... Both of my parents are now gone, and I, I, it's I, I don't even know how to to describe that kind of loss. Um, of course, everybody knows who's in that club, but.
1: Um, well, I'm in it, and I will tell you, it 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 changes you. Uh, I've lost my father, my mother, and my stepmother, and it definitely has an effect that. It's a sobering effect on the one hand, and on the other hand, and I don't want this interpreted wrong wrongly, but it, it's also a freeing effect. Uh, it, it, uh, if you it, once you get through it, because it's okay. such a, a, a loss in the heart, but at the same time, you think back on all this unbelievable stuff that they taught you, and you then are kind of on your own to kind of teach your kids, and that's kind of yeah. how I look
2: at it. And I think that's really the way it's designed. You know mm-hmm. i think um I think it's that's what's supposed to happen and and we pick up the mantle and move on right and i I think that um uh, particularly to your point and and I don't want that interpreted the wrong way either, but you you're you are verbalizing something I've felt many times, which my mother had such a protracted uh nine years of illness in and out of hospitals and hmm uh the relief when she died for her and for all of us was palpable for me i right. i um there's just nothing worse than watching someone you love suffer and you you're impotent to do anything about it
1: well um, we went through us we went through similar lives cuz uh, my mother was very very sick i was i was a lot younger was very young and, and, and passed away. She passed away on Christmas morning and I was uh. five years old and she had suffered every year that I was alive and I, I, I didn't understand it until much later in my life. But, uh, I think you're right. I think that, you know, and, and it kind of gets me to at a part in your life, you actually attempted to retire or did retire so you could spend more time with your kids and, and, um, you know, I know, um, I actually caught you on The View a while back when you were on as a guest and you told the story about going to the park and, and having to borrow the diaper from Annette Benning and, and, and kind of like maybe you needed to feel that you, you wanted to spend more time with your children. Was that a turning point for
2: you? It was that was huge because I, you know, just being at the park that day and for, you know, your, uh um, viewers or listeners whatever that, that that don't know what you're talking about I had gone to um i had been you know I cuz when you are on a TV show you have to sign these very long contracts they're one way you know um and they're 6 years so I'd already been on sisters for 6 years then moved to once and again we were on for 4 years counting shooting the pilot And during that time, I started. I started sisters single. I ended up, you know, finishing once and again. Married with two children, and I just, I, I, I wasn't there. I mean, I, I left before they woke up, and I came home, and they were already asleep. You know, I'd have these 14, 16 hour days, and I hadn't. I really didn't hardly know how to change a diaper. I didn't have sense enough to take a diaper bag with me thinking, oh, well, they'll be fine for the hour we're at the park, you know, like my, my son, my first child. And I remember, you know, Net Benning happened to be there, and I had met her before, but I didn't know her, but and and but it was a safe place to go to and say, do you by any chance have a diaper? And she, she looked so, you know, proficient at being a mom, you know, she was just so had it all wired, it seemed, across the playground <laughs> and I and then when I got the diaper I didn't have anywhere to lay Austin down to change the diaper except the sand and then I didn't really know what to do there. <laughs> and I'm like well, I finally just gathered everything up and, and got back in the car and went home and I went, Okay, I think it's time to stop now you know. So as soon as I finished my contract, um and then did you know, did several odd jobs here and there and Mama died I went you know what I think if, I, if I'm if i only able to play roles like in Day After Tomorrow and uh, what was the other in The Guardian where you're the ex-wife yeah. and you're not driving the storyline and there's really nothing to sink your teeth into like those amazing shows I came off of I said you know what I think I'm done I think I'm really done I'm going to be with my kids and um, and go back into my art studio and paint and and I really did that. I really, in my mind, was retired and I spent a lot of time with, with my children and, uh, really learning how to be a mom and, and that was really, my kids were fine. My kids were so fine because they've had, you know, I've had steady people with me. They, they don't know life without, you know, um, Julie. <laughs> the nanny now she's my assistant because they no longer need a nanny but she's a permanent fixture you know in our lives and and so they've they've had continuity but i i um uh, for me i i had not had i missed out on a lot of that experience so well
4: you
1: you have great depth uh, uh, as as a human being and as a you know just especially relating this story it's clear to me that 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 you know you have great character and 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 when i met you i felt that way too uh, In fact it it leads me to uh, cuz we have unfortunately these things always don't leave us with enough time i could spend a whole other show with the work you've done uh, with your charity with Hope Village for Children i want i want to talk about that for a few minutes in 1998 you visited a local emergency shelter in your hometown of Meridian and were extremely moved and touched by the children you met and Some were separated from their siblings and had experienced many moves since they were, you know, really first taken to the Department of Human Services. And you continued to visit the children with your family. And when you were in town and in 2000, you and your husband, Howard Sherman, founded the Hope Village, uh, which, by the way, for our listeners is www.hopevillagems.com, www.hopevillagems.com. Uh, can you tell us about that? Because we're really interested in wanting to know more about your work w- w- with the children.
2: Well, a friend of mine had started that emergency shelter in I West, and I really want to check it out. It was Christmas time, and um, and we did. We, we, there were two boys there. They were brothers, and, and they were 9 and 11 years old. And their story was that their dad had been prostituting their sisters, and their sisters had already been placed in homes separated and placed in homes in different parts of the state, and these two boys, and the mother was in jail for uh, drug drug things, so these two boys um, were all they had left in the world, okay, and being one of four children, I was told that they were about to be separated and sent to different homes in different parts of the state like their sisters because there was no one facility that had enough space to take all the siblings together. Okay, this I couldn't get this out of my head. I I went home, and being one of four kids, I'm putting myself in the place of a 9-year-old or an 11-year-old thinking, what would that be like to have everything you know Ripped from you, and now you're separate you're, you're the only thing you have left is your little brother, and somebody's going to take him away and put him somewhere else in another part of the state. I couldn't, I couldn't. I I cried about this, <laughs> with Howard on the phone. And when we have to adopt these children, I can't. I just can't bear this. This is this is just so inhumane. I can't get over it. Long story short, he said, "What is the real issue? The issues is that there's there's no facility large enough." So we. I, I got the funding, and there was an abandoned children's home in Meridian that the Masons had run, 25 acres, and we got to uh, raise the money to purchase the property and open up Hope Village. And it, it and our mission is to keep siblings together. And it, at one point, we had five siblings from one family there together. Um, maybe the most rewarding, more important than any. In me or any kind of accolade or celebrity that I'll ever feel—I think the value of that for me personally, not because, um, not, not because of just something I could—I could sit there and go, "Oh yeah, I founded this," but because for me personally, because I'm on the board and I'm very involved and. Sit and go visit the kids and sit in their rooms and talk to them and and really see what we're able to do with these people in front of me, face-to-face, a a young human being that I know we're directly changing that person's life forever is maybe the most amazing thing I'll ever do in my life.
1: Well, I, I will, as we're closing the show, just want to say that uh, and that 90% of the children in your program complete high school and over 50% go off to college. It's an amazing success. Your journey that you shared with us, I think, is will inspire people. I hope that they will help and contribute and donate and help you with your Hope Village. Uh, you're an amazing person. Uh, uh, we, I want to thank you for your time. I want to thank our listeners for turning into a to tuning into a current life on the Voice America Variety Channel. Uh, we've been joined with Sheila Ward and her journey, and, and until next time, I want to wish each and every one of you a journey filled with much hope and inspiration success. Join us next week for our visit with Ray J., who's the founder of Knockout Entertainment and the award-winning singer, actor, producer, entrepreneur, and author. And, Sheila, to you and to Howard, all of my love and all of my best, and, and thank you for sharing your journey with us.
2: Thank you, Jimmy. It's been a pleasure.
1: I look forward to seeing you soon.
2: Okay.
0: Thanks again for joining us for A Current Life on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please tune in to another great program with your host, Jimmy Gould, next Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time. We'll see you next week.